good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. You are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, this morning I have three guests. My first guest is neuropsychologist Charlotte Tamano. She's a Ph.D. and author of Awakening the Brain, the Neuropsychology of Grace. Dr. Tamano has been in clinical practice or has had a clinical practice or a clinical experience for over 30 years. She was also a Catholic nun, and all of this has helped her to and her readers to ex- learn how to expand their brain capacity using spiritualities, which is a very interesting concept, and her treatment methods have been featured in Time Magazine and the New York Times. She's my first guest. My second guest is president and founder of The Rare Project, Nicole Boyce. She's a mother, a coach, a businesswoman, and uh, she is an advocate for rare diseases. Apparently there are 7,000 rare diseases affecting more than 350 million people worldwide. Uh, Nicole's work uh, is a result of, of a personal experience with a family, a very close family friend of hers, who was affected by a rare disease. And uh, last is, many of you know him, travel expert Rick Steves, and uh, he's coming at an appropriate time because it's June and everybody's traveling. And uh, his new book is Rick Steves, Europe Through the Back Door, 2012. So he's going to tell us how to go to travel through Europe using digital tips and tricks to navigate Europe and do it in a very inexpensive way. But uh, my first guest, neuropsychologist, Charlotte Tamino. And Charlotte, is it Tamino or Tamino? Uh, Tamino. Tamino. Charlotte Tamino, Ph.D., Awakening the Brain, the Neuropsychology of Grace. Well, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Interesting topic. I mean, I've had quite a few guests on um, Charlotte, who have talked about neuroplasticity, which I guess is what this is your book is 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 all about. But it, mm-hmm. you take a very different kind of focus. You talk about the fact that we can change our brains by just changing our belief system, and we can do that through conscious thought. Um, Absolutely. How do we do that? Well, I personally think that science is guiding us to understand ourselves in a way that we never have. Uh, Twenty years ago, before the decade of the brain and all the information that we got from that, we really didn't know how our own brains worked. Now that we do, we realize that if we change our focus and start attending to something else that has a different meaning to us, we're actually changing our autonomic nervous system and the emotions that it's generating. So why do we want to change our brains? Let's make, okay, we, we, I guess we're establishing the premise that we can do that. We, our brain uh, is, is plastic, it, it's malleable, and uh, our belief systems helps to change that. So why would we want to do that? Because I know some of your work... Uh, initially was with with people who had had um, uh, maybe accidents that had their brains were uh, damaged permanently mm-hmm. and they weren't able to function normally and some of your work emerged out of that but well I think there's a lot of different answers to your question depending on what a person wants but I think our general population in the world is having a pretty challenging time someone recently said to me that they felt They were suffering from time starvation. We're being bombarded constantly, and our brains are reacting to the outer world, leaving us having the feeling of being behind, not being able to keep up more things to do than the time to do it in. And in fact, we can control whether we are focusing on the outer world or the inner world of what we really want and be guided by our own focus within us. Right, so give us an example of that, like an actual clinical experience, a client of yours or a patient. Well, people, I actually get women who come in telling me that they have brain fog, that they are running the lives of their three children or four children, they're managing their husband's needs, their household, and they themselves are getting so overloaded, they don't know whether taking Chinese at three years old is something they really should do or whether it's better for themselves and the kids to have downtime. And they are getting so overloaded that they themselves feel like they can't focus, they can't think, they can't organize time for all these people and keep track of it all and still have a life of their own. They're getting worn out. So as a clinician, what do you do? Well, I 
help everyone understand that every brain is unique. We each have a cognitive style that is ours. There's no two brains that are the same. There never will be. And understanding how the style of your brain works helps you develop a system for your life, prioritizing what's really important to you, and that includes keeping your own health and well-being, your exercise, your nutrition, your hydration, all in the flow of your day so that you're taking care of yourself and you're targeting what's really important to you, not just reacting to everything that's going on around you. So in other words, focus. I know that word comes up in your book a lot. So if mm-hmm. one is able to, to focus... Um, right. and but it's also about the frontal lobes and setting priorities. The frontal lobes of our brain is where our focus is located, how we control our attention. But it's also about these executive functions of how we organize our day, how we set our priorities, what's really most important, how to let go of things that really aren't that important, how to set the sequence of the day so that it follows the intention you have. And intention is a big word. If you don't make an intention of what you really want in your life, you are reacting to whatever bombardment comes to you. Well, are you saying that if we expand our brain function and that we can achieve what we really want, what we want to get out of life? Absolutely. So that it becomes automatic. Like, let's say I'm in therapy with you and I'm coming in and I am one of those women. And I I would say I'm one of those, not one of those women because my kids are grown, but I'm in a position where I feel like I am am bombarded with all this information all the time, Uh, brain, you know, information overload, distraction, all those words come into mind. So I need to be able to focus. And if I'm able to do that, then does my, are you saying that when, the bombardment from outside comes, I'm then able to automatically, um, my brain is already, it's changed, so it doesn't react to all that stuff or all that noise? Well, it's not that it doesn't react, but you, there's a, your brain is going to react, but it's going to react without you deciding. And so if you start your day with a plan, if you have already thought through what's really important to you, if you, Catherine, have decided which topics are the ones you think are the most important right now in this time and place for your listeners to focus on, then you'll pick the right questions because you've primed your brain with your executive functions to take the categories that you have already decided on. And if you've decided in advance, you'll hear them. You've primed your brain and focused it at the beginning of the day. And that's why you'll pick up on them, even if they're subtle. If if I'm going to be able to do that, do I need Mm -hmm. to, is it important for me to get into counseling or therapy? Do I need to come to you as a as a client, or am I able to do this on my own? Yeah, not, not, you don't necessarily need someone like me. I mean, certainly someone who's been through the windshield in a car accident needs someone like me, or even children who are having difficulty with learning or somebody changing careers really needs to know a lot of information to make good decisions. But the general public basically needs to know how the brain works. And just a routine of setting your goals, defining a mission statement, having your priorities actually written down, um, planning your day. You know, sports psychology has shown us a lot. And the skiers standing at the top of the mountain with their eyes closed, imagining going down the hill and around the flags and in and out, is priming their brain and priming their body to be successful. Well, we could do that every day, every morning. We can anticipate how we want each meeting to come out or how each encounter to what the result we want to see happen. We can actually focus on that and set those intentions and have those priorities. Priming your brain to do that is going to enhance the likelihood of the outcome that you're looking for, and it'll help you stay focused on what your priorities are, not just be bombarded by anything that comes at you. So, in other words, you can actually change the brain or change its very structure, as you say, through just conscious thought. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And if you have practices like this, and this is why we study the brains of nuns and monks, because they have very specific meditation and spiritual practices that are actually training their brains to have better focus, that are training their brains to be targeted on specific things they believe in. But that's true of every brain. Every brain that focuses and has a regular practice that is grounding will actually build a neural network in the brain that will train your automatic response. You can train that yourself. Now, is this this particular, should I call it a, a philosophy, or this is all associated with neuroplasticity? This is relatively new, isn't it? Or is th- in, Absolutely in of- it is. It takes time for the science to actually be understood, interpreted, applied, and then explained. So I got into this in the 70s and have been participating in all of this information coming out, and I'm a person that applies it. So I take the neuroscience information and develop treatment methods and methods of guidance and methods of teaching to help people understand how they can improve their cognitive style and how you they can enhance their functioning. You started doing this in the 70s, and I know it, you were a nun. How mm-hmm. did that experience impact on the work that you're doing now? Oh, that was huge. I spent three years in silence, and it was wonderful. Actually, it was in the 60s, from 65 to 68. Other people did other things in the 60s. But it was very grounding for me to be conscious of my inner world. And in that time, every day, we formed intentions to be conscious of where we were coming from and bring meaning to the things we were doing, even if it was working in the laundry. And so bringing a higher consciousness to what you're doing is very much like the skier coming down the mountain, having a purpose and intention that you stay focused on. And when you train your brain to do that, it will do it. I mean, are you saying, though, you you had three years of silence? Yes, Mm -hmm. that's what I'm saying. You never spoke for three years? Well, we spoke at recreation. We had certain times that we could speak. If you were working in the laundry and you had to talk to somebody about something you were working on, you certainly did. But for the most part, people didn't talk. No one talked in the hallways. There wasn't um, just general conversation going on because the point was what we called spiritual formation. You wanted your attention to be more on the inner world than the outer world. I mean, that kind of says it all, the focusing on the inner world rather than the outer world. And when you say that, what comes to my mind, and I kind of touched on that on this in the beginning, is that it's really the antithesis of what our daily lives are like, generally speaking. Because Especially there's now. so much chatter. I mean, it's just yeah. constant with, with, our, you know, with the Internet, with um, social media, with all the things that we're confronted with and all the responsibilities. How do you, I mean, we're not going to, most of us are not going to have, be able to go through three years of silence and mm-hmm. to be able to focus in the way you did in terms of our spirituality. How do we practically do this? And I mean, in, in the context of how many of us live our lives today. Well, one of, the, one of the biggest challenges we have is that we're addicted to technology and we don't even know it. We think we have to keep up on everything that's going on in the world, which is literally impossible. And we don't take time for the inner world. So just shutting off the technology and doing some mindfulness meditation or even during a meal, just paying attention to the textures in your mouth and the tastes. How many people eat a meal and if you ask them about how it tasted, they can't even tell you. Ever we're in such a rush, we're eating standing up in the car. They can't not... remember what they ate, let alone to tell you what the text <laughs> Let alone how it tasted. Yeah. Right. But being present, and this is what mindfulness meditation is all about, or any form of just really focusing on the immediate present, the present moment, the power of now. We have a lot of this kind of thinking going on in our, you know, a lot of in our media that's available to us. There's a lot of people like the Dalai Lama that are presenting information. This is one of the reasons why Mother Teresa is so popular. People want something bigger. And need something bigger. And I'm going to give you an example, and I I, I should be ashamed to tell you this or ashamed to say it on the radio, but it's such a perfect example of what not to do. 
uh, I mean, I two days ago I went. I I do walk every day, and most yeah. of my listeners know that by now. So I walk my four miles. Well, I had all this stuff that had to get done. I have two cell phones, and I brought them both with me. So I'm walking and talking on one of the cell phones, and the other one I have in my pocket of my hoodie, and I'm focusing on three or four calls. And suddenly I, you know, I walk two miles, and I'm coming back, and I realize I, I don't. Have, I lost my other cell phone. So I'm frantic, and I, then I walk back to where I was, and then I walk, you know, the other three miles. And finally I passed these two teenagers who saw me kind of frantically looking around, and they said, did you lose your cell phone? And I'm like, yes, thank you. And I took the cell phone, and mm-hmm. I, I was in this frenzy. And, you know, and it was, it's kind of just describing, like, what you're saying is we need to step back and not do that. Is, isn't that a great example? I mean, I was, uh, first of all, bringing two cell phones on a walk that's supposed to relax me is number one you don't do that but not, you know not being focused not being aware of what i was doing all of those things and and that's an well, example Catherine, bad it example. sounds to me like you have a really big life and you're offering the world <laughs> great information but where, how are you taking care of you let me give you a little tip when your body reacts because your cell phone is lost and that's a big deal that's a big deal when your body reacts you're going into a state we call hyperarousal and you can feel it. You can feel your heart race. You can feel your muscles tense. You start getting very vigilant, looking around. And that's a state in your brain called the fight-and-flight response, right? Even right. though there's no uh, imminent danger of anybody harming you, losing your cell phone will put you there. Here's a trick we teach to first graders. The first thing you do is just say, I know that I only went from here to there and that if I go back, it'll be there somewhere. So first you focus on the solution and get your thoughts off of the problem. So once you're focused on the solution, then you have to breathe deeply and rhythmically because when your lungs are going in and out, it's regulating your heart. That racing heart will slow down. And third, you've got to pay attention to your muscles. And just let your muscles relax and let go. If you do those three things, you actually get smarter. You can think better. You can think more broadly rather than reactively. So, and you can do those three things in a New York minute. So in a minute's time, you can take yourself out of hyperarousal where we get really stupid and into optimal arousal where we can think again and be clear again. And then, of course... Leave your cell phone home when you go for a walk and just look at the trees, hear the birds, smell the air. That's really good for you. Yeah, and I think that last thing, yes, obviously, and that should come first or the other probably obviously wouldn't have happened. And that's difficult for me to do. But I, I think that, yeah, not being aware of your, I, I'm this whole issue of mindful meditation, I, I really am beginning, I don't know, all it just you know, having guests like you, and I've had several other guests of talking about mindful meditation. Um, it really does work. It, it really be, does. If, yeah. you, if you did even half of your walk, and I appreciate the demands in your kind of job, I try to limit them in mine too, but it's hard to do that. But even if you did half, the last half of your walk, just aware of your stepping the, on the earth and aware of the breeze on your face and paying attention to the sounds and the movement in the trees... If you just spend half of your walk focused on that, shut the phones off for half, your whole nervous system will go back into a healthy, healthier state and your body's chemistry will shift. So what do you do? Um, I assume you are doing this in your own life. And as you say, I mean, you're uh, a, a busy psychologist, a big mm-hmm. practice, an author. I mean, you know, yep. you have all of these distractions. I, I really make- identify with what you're saying. I take breaks between patients, even if it's just two minutes, even if it's 15 minutes. I walk out to get my lunch in the middle of the day so that I get out of the office for 20 minutes. I exercise by the water and actually don't allow myself to play those stories in my head. So I know that when I'm taking my walk, I can still be in the office mentally And so I don't allow words in my mind during that time. And if words come in, I let go of them, and I just visually focus on the colors, the terrain, the water, the smells, 
what I'm suggesting that you do on half of your walk. That's exactly what I do. Uh, I try to do it at least five times a week. And then I meditate at night, just not allowing, maybe for an hour as I go to get ready to go to bed, um, I just let my nervous system unwind so that my sleep is actually much deeper if I do that right before going to bed. And if I allow my nervous system to unwind before going to bed, my sleep is much more restorative because when I went to sleep, I was already more relaxed. That's well said. I always like to kind of end with a, a personal example, which you just gave us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to obviously mention your book again, Awakening the Brain, the Neuropsychology of Grace, um, Charlotte Tomino, Ph.D. Um, what a pleasure. I, I, you've helped my listeners, and you've certainly helped me, so I, I thank you. You're and very welcome. Just take that half a walk because you're doing a fabulous job, and we want you to be able to keep doing it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Charlotte. Okay. We'll thank talk you. again. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye-bye. We're going to take a short break. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My next guest coming up is Nicole um, Boyce, and uh, she is the president and founder of the RARE Project. Uh, learn about rare and orphan diseases, what you need to know. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My next guest is here with us today. She is the president and founder of the Rare Project. I was going to say the Rare Book Project, the Rare Project, Nicole Boyce, a rare disease. She's an advocate for research and education. Apparently, she's a mother, a businesswoman, and a coach. Uh, there are nearly 7,000 rare diseases affecting more than 350 million people worldwide. So, Nicole it works to create greater public awareness uh, of families affected by rare diseases, and this is based on her own personal experience with a family friend. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. So, okay, you are the advocate for this. You're a businesswoman. I guess you all, you're a marketer, so you're the person to do this. Uh, rare diseases, uh, why did you found the Rare Project? I know uh, plenty of people say, well, rare diseases, why do we need to put, spend money on rare diseases when we have these diseases that affect, you know, hundreds of millions of people? Um, you, just, you just nailed it on the head, right? There's, yep. there's literally 350 million people worldwide affected by rare disease. So kind of the notion of rare being rare doesn't even apply in this, this case, right? One in ten Americans have a rare disease, and that means between you and I, we know multiple people um, that, that are affected. And um, so as, as a caring human race, you know, humanity, you know, it's, it's important for us to recognize just how prevalent is, this is and, you know, try to create um, ways that we can help support them. Yeah, and a rare disease, a disease affects not only an individual, obviously. When a, somebody, anybody in the family has the disease, it infects entire families. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, but, Nicole, what, kind, what would you consider, or what is considered, what are considered rare diseases? An example of some of those diseases your organization works with. 
Sure. Um, and, and just to give you numbers also, like you mentioned about, um, it's, cla- it's classically defined as a rare disease of, if it affects 200,000 people or less. However, the majority of them actually affect less than 6,000 people, um, and they're termed ultra-rare. And so some of those diseases are, you know, names like ataxia-telangiectasia, Gaucher disease, Pompeii disease, um, juvenile dermatomyositis. I mean, they're incredibly difficult to pronounce. They're very complex, rare genetic conditions. Um, and like you mentioned, there's, there's, there's been identified over 7,000 of them. Um, that doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, thousands and thousands of individuals go undiagnosed today as well. Um, but it's just, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. And that's why the notion of creating awareness for this community is so critical. Well, as I understand it, you had a personal experience with this with a family friend. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, about 12 years ago, a dear friend's son was born in a very metropolitan area, and he was born with all sorts of complications in the hospital literally for the first six months of his life. Um, it, but it took two and a half years for them to come to a diagnosis. Now, imagine living as a parent and not knowing what the next day you know, will bring in terms of your child's health. Like, it's just horrible. And in that two and a half years, I started meeting other families that all were affected by just different diseases. And you start seeing that they all actually have a lot of shared, you know, experiences. They, they share a lot of this journey together. Um, but w- the most important thing was, um, you know, what could we do if we kind of, you know, came together as a community? Could we build greater voice? Could we attract attention from biotechnology and from government um, to help really start putting more attention and effort um, around rare diseases and these millions of people that, that are affected. And that's kind of what brought us here to bio and other patient advocacy organizations as well. I think one of the things I know for me, and I've noticed it in the, in the news lately, uh, I think sometimes uh, we as the general public think, well, it's a rare disease. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect en- enough people. Why should, I'm getting back to the first thing I asked you. Why put so much money and time and research into it? One of the things I think is that, you know, when you put time and money and research into rare diseases, that, that research and that technology also expands to other diseases that affect maybe even more people. I mean, if you're working on some disease that's, uh, you know, say some kind of neuromuscular disease that perhaps one hasn't heard about, if the research can expand to multiple sclerosis or it's not an isolated kind of uh, scientific situation. You're absolutely spot on, and we're seeing that more and more. In fact, Francis Collins, who heads up the NIH, um, has kind of, you know, in the old school you know, the old way of thinking was, you know, top down. If we study common diseases, ultimately it will trickle down and, and maybe help us better understand these, these smaller, rare orphan diseases. But even Francis Collins knows now that that needs to switch. And it is happening. So, for example, you know, there's, there's a disease called Neiman Pick, and it is almost like a childhood Alzheimer's. So the research that they're doing um, around Neiman Pick obviously has these broader implications for Alzheimer's. And so it's an amazing thing. And, you know, this type of um, collaboration across these different rare diseases are also um, important as well. So there, there is a lot of commonalities, not only on the social side, you know, of, of, of rare disease, but also um, on the science as well. Well, I guess my last question is going to be, uh, we've presented the problem. We ha- we're hoping that people become more aware by listening to you, obviously, and to the program. But uh, my last question is, where can a patient or a parent, depending on who it is in the family, go for more information right now? Um, they can join us at rareproject.org or our awareness campaign um, at globalgenes.org, and there are a million ways to get involved and get engaged. Fantastic. Great having you on the show this morning, and keep up the good work, obviously. Nicole Boyce, president and founder of The Rare Project. Have a good day. Thank you. Thanks, you too. Okay. Bye. Uh, we have been, you have been, and you are listening to The Catherine Zock Show. We've been talking to neuropsychologist Charlotte Tomano, Awakening the Brain, the Neuropsychology of Grace. Uh, and our second guest has been uh, Nicole Boyce, and Nicole Boyce is the uh, founder and president of the Rare Project. And if uh, uh, 
you can go online to the Rare Project for more information uh, about that, uh, learn about rare and orphan diseases, what you need to know. Uh, our next guest uh, is, uh, and many of you have heard of him, is Rick Steves. I was talking to one of my friends today, and I said, oh, I'm going to have Rick Steves on the show, and they were so impressed because they do listen to his show all the time on the P- as a PBS series. Um, his series at PBS and NPR. So uh, I'm sitting here with all his information and his new book, Rick Steves, Europe Through the Back Door, 2012. And uh, what he presents us with is it's very unique because now Rick Steves has digital tips and tricks to navigate Europe. And he talks, tells us how to do this at a, um, in cities, some of the major cities in Europe, for less than the price of a gelato. Uh, Steve has published over 50 guidebooks for European travel and, as many of you know, is regarded as one of America's leading experts on Europe. So if you are interested, and you can do this even before we start talking to him, uh, is uh, you can go to ricksteves.com. Ricksteves.com is the website, and uh, obviously they have information about the new book, Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door, the travel, it's called the Travel Skills Handbook, which is great. And I've traveled a lot, as most of you know, all around the world and in Europe as well. But uh, if you get the book, one of the, you can, um, and I think this is really important. I had a friend who's going to Europe for, you know, really the first time. And one of the things that he emphasizes is you have to plan your itinerary. Do it before you go. Don't, and, and that will maximize your time. If you only have a week, if you only have two weeks, it's really important to Prepare your itinerary, itinerary beforehand. You need to know what you want to see, where you want to go. Otherwise, you can really waste even days. Um, so we're going to learn all about this uh, with Rick Steve, but we're going to take a, a uh, short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. We'll be back in a minute. <music> Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And by the way, as you know, you can listen to us every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. Uh, that's live. And at the end of the day, we archive the show, and uh, it comes up on the VoiceAmericaVariety.com website, The Catherine Zock Show, and uh, you can download uh, the show on an MP3. So um, my last guest is Rick Steves, and uh, I'm excited to have him on the show because he is a, uh, a, a, a travel um Expert. He's a European travel expert, to be specific, and he's been uh, uh, has created actually fifty travel guidebooks, and he has his own show, his own radio show on public television, Rick Steves Europe, and his latest book, which we're going to be talking about in a few minutes, is Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door, 2012, the Travel Skills Handbook. And as most of you know, I travel all over the world and in Europe, so I have a lot of questions for Rick. But he's going digital with new e-books for your mobile devices and e-readers. So 
this is a whole new way to navigate or negotiate traveling, and it's specifically Europe. Um, his books, Rick Steves Walks and Rick Steves Tour eBooks, are now available um, for what he considers must-see locations, and I agree with him, uh, which are in uh, throughout Europe: London, Paris, Rome, Florence, Venice, Amsterdam, Vienna, Budapest, Athens, and Istanbul. And I have to say, I've been to every single one of those cities except for Venice. So today I'm going to uh, ask him specifically about Venice. Well, Rick is ready to go. So um, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Rick. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Great to have you here. Okay. Uh, I'm excited because if you've been listening, I'm a, I am a world traveler. I've traveled all my life. Really, really important, I think. And um, so I'm really excited about your new book. Tell us about it. Europe Through the Back Door. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, Europe Through the Back Door is the first book I wrote back in 1980. I've updated it every year since then. Uh, So this is the new edition. 31st edition or something like that. And it's just where I collect all the um, practical tips and skills so we can enjoy maximum travel thrills for every mile, minute, and dollar on our next trip to Europe. So, so how has it changed? How has it changed? Okay, this is the updated version of, you know, you've been writing about this for years and years. How has traveling through Europe changed, or how is uh, we as travelers, how should we negotiate it differently than, say, we used to? Well, it used to take eight hours to go from London to Paris. Now it takes two and a half hours. Uh, you know, you used to have to wait till banks were open to change money, and, of course, now the last thing you ever want to do is uh, have a traveler's check. I think... Uh, ATMs are just a beautiful thing. There used to be a serious language barrier that really no longer exists. Anybody in the tourist industry will be able to help you out in English. Um, there was a time when you had to have uh, little tokens to make a phone call uh, in, a, in a public phone booth, and, and now everybody travels with cell phones, or they should. So there's lots of technological changes. There's lots of uh, investment in infrastructure in Europe that makes us uh, able to get around smoother and faster than ever before. There's lots of new museums in Europe that are opening up all the time, all over Eastern Europe now. Uh, you know, Grandpa's dead, and they can talk about what he did during the communist days. Uh, so there's new museums about the secret police and the, the difficult times under under uh, communism in Eastern Europe, and uh, this is important for us to know about. Basically, you need up-to-date information to have a good trip. Yeah, and I think one of the things you say, or the, the first thing that you on the checklist, and it's actually on the back of your book, plan your itinerary. A lot of people don't do that. They think, well, I just want to go over there, and I'm just going to be relaxed, and it's vacation. I don't necessarily need to plan things. But if you don't, you really waste a lot of time, and you can miss a lot, especially if you're only, let's say, there for a week or ten days. Well, there's two IQs of European travelers, those who wait in lines and those who don't wait in lines. And all over Europe, I see people with that attitude of, why have a plan, uh, spending a good part of their day in lines with other, you know, lazy and uh, ill-equipped and ill-prepared travelers, just flat-out wasting precious opportunities. I was just in uh, Venice, and at 9 o'clock in the morning, there's already a very long line to get into the St. Mark's Basilica. You can wait an hour to get into that church. Well, in my guidebook, I explained that, you know, 100 yards from the church, there's a baggage check desk. You can leave your bag there, pick up the uh, receipt for your bag, and then with that receipt, you can walk straight to the turnstile, show it to the guard, and go immediately, directly into the church and save an hour of time uh, on that day in Venice. I was recently uh, going up the Eiffel Tower, and I was taking a photograph from the first level down at the, at the ground, and there was a line that was, uh, must have been 400 yards long of people waiting to get onto the elevator to go up the Eiffel Tower. And there was another series of stanchions with nobody in them designed for people who made a reservation to go up on the Internet a few days in advance. I had made the reservation. I walked through all those empty stanchions and went straight up the, uh, straight into the elevator and up the Eiffel Tower while all those other people were waiting. So these are just little practical ideas about how somebody who's on the ball can travel smarter. And, of course, there's plenty of ways to eat better, sleep better, sightsee better, have more fun while spending less money if you know how to. And one thing I do with my staff of 80 people here in Seattle and uh, the experience I gain from spending 100 days a year in Europe checking all these things out is gather that information and design it in ways that people can be their own tour guide and travel efficiently. And now with the digital sort of revolution, you can do it with standard print or you can do it with your tablet or your mobile device. Uh, bottom line, I don't care how you get the information, just get that information, use it, and travel smartly. Is it different for different groups, Steve, like you know, younger people, let's say people are in their 20s and 30s, as opposed to maybe older people? 
you know, do they necessarily travel differently, or do they uh, just ha- access the same information in the same way? Well, different people, different groups access the same information in different ways. Young people are more adept with the digital stuff, so they'd almost prefer to have it on their phone or their mobile device, whereas older travelers have a guidebook with all their little stickers in it and marked pages and, you know, dog-eared and notes in the border. Uh, it doesn't really matter to me. I think I think it's important to remember digital is exciting, but 90% of guidebook sales are still print. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's there's just different ways to do it. But I think what's exciting is to know that, um, you know, there are, if you're going to be on the ball these days, you need a cell phone. Uh, if you have an iPhone or something that works that way, you can disable it and turn it into an iTouch, and then you've got, you can use it for free in Europe, wherever you can get online, and you can capture your Google Map in the morning before leaving your hotel, and you've got the best map imaginable right there in your pocket uh, for free all day long uh, on your phone. Uh, you can use different apps. I've made an app where it's, uh, my app is free. It's called Rick Steves Audio Europe, and I've very put a lot of energy and, and time and money into producing these self-guided walks. So now there's, I've got about 42-hour self-guided walks available for free, covering all of the major sites, museums, and important historic walks in the major cities, London, Paris, Venice, Florence, Rome, Athens, Vienna, and so on. And people can just grab this app, download the walks they want. I've had my five, hour, five years of radio show archives. I've deconstructed each show and organized all the interviews into country-specific playlists. So if somebody's going to Portugal or Ireland or Spain, would it? whatever, they can just grab all of the uh, information relating to that destination, put it on their mobile device or their iPhone, and listen to it at their leisure while they're traveling. Uh, you know, this is just a, a smart way for travelers to, you know, busy people who don't have a chance to do all the studying beforehand, to have that information with them so that they can be on the ball while they're uh, enjoying their trip. Some people travel just to lay on the beach and have some duty-free shopping and try not to get sunburned. Other people travel to learn and broaden their perspective and have a life-changing experience. I'm helping that latter group. Yeah, and you're going to be helping me, or you have helped me already, because I have a list of all you, you know, the, the cities that you mentioned are the must-see cities, and the only one that I haven't been to in Europe, and we're going to go in two weeks and not prepared, actually, so I'm glad I interviewed you today, is Venice. So I have right. to download that app. Um, yeah. That, mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll make it very easy. Well, I was just in Venice using my, I use my own tours just to check them out, and I just find them very enjoyable. And uh, I was just in Venice for a couple of weeks, just uh, last month, making new TV shows and working on my guidebook. And you are in for a real treat when you get to Venice. And uh, I'll tell you, it's, uh, I've been going there for 20 years, and I'm still learning lots. And uh, to go to Venice with a good guide and with a, uh, you know, a, a curious attitude and to be well-organized, it's one of the greatest places you can go anywhere on this planet. Steve, do you need to have a travel agent? I mean, is one is that necessary? It's not necessary, but I still use a good old-fashioned travel agent when it comes to getting my international um, flights. Uh, I like to, you know, um, and I I rarely fly in and out of the same city. I go open jaws into one city and out of another city. I just flew in last, uh, as I mentioned, I spent four months a year in Europe. I spent April and May in the Mediterranean and July and August north of the Alps. Uh, I just, uh, on my spring trip, I flew into Lisbon, and I flew home from Venice. And then while I'm at it, I get my travel agent to book me the uh, point-to-point flights within Europe. And, you know, this can be kind of complicated. And if you're really on the ball with uh, searching and finding all the discount airlines and you want to put up with the discount airlines, you can fly probably for $50 a a hop. But I just go with the standard airlines and the standard travel agent, and it costs me about $100 per leg. So on this last trip, for instance, I flew from Seattle to Lisbon, uh, and then I flew from Lisbon to Madrid, and then I flew from Madrid to Barcelona, and I flew from Barcelona to Pisa, and then I traveled overland around Italy, and I flew from Venice back to Seattle. And the flights within Europe cost me about $100 each, and they were certainly worth that when I consider all the convenience and the time savings. Well, it's not my last question, but this is another question, because you mentioned this in, in, in your book, in the latest book, uh, Rick Steves, Europe Through the Back Door, 2012. One of the things that you say is, um, and this is part of traveling, and I thought it was really interesting, you gave yourself as an example, make yourself an extrovert, even if you're not, while you're traveling, because you'll get a lot more out of it. Give us an example of that. How can we do that? Well, you know, for 25 years I was a tour guide, and this, the main way we make money here at, at Europe for the Back Door in Seattle is through our tour program. We take 
10,000 people on our tours every year and on 400 different tours around Europe. And when I'm designing these tours, if I don't connect people with people, it's going to be a flat experience. The way we distinguish our tours is help our groups get out and meet real people, not just the lady in the dirndl that meets the tourists at the airport sent there by the tourist board, but you know, real people that don't look at you as uh, a way to make money, but look at you as a friend from far away. You can travel in a way where you're part of the party or part of the economy. I'd rather travel in a way where I'm part of the party. Uh, when I'm making a TV show, writing a guidebook, or putting our tours together, if I'm not connecting people with people, it's going to be a, a flat experience. It's people that carbonate your travels. And what I was talking about in, in that basic handbook here up to the back door is thinking of clever ways where you can actually get out and make some friends. When you go to a pub in Britain or Ireland, you've got to realize pub is short for public house. It's the neighborhood living room, the extended living room where people get together to be social. And if you sit at a table, people are going to think, oh, you're not interested in talking. But if you sit at the bar, they're just assuming you're sitting at the bar because you want to talk with people. Um, there's so many, you know, there's so many ways to, to get to know Europeans as you travel. Uh, and there's so many ways that we can be temporary local people rather than just gawky tourists with a camera bouncing on our belly. Uh, it's really important to get out and uh, and connect with people. You can uh, you know you can go to the markets and and uh, and and buy things and 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 connect with people that way. You can uh, instead of just going to tourist shows and seeing cliches on stage, you can figure out ways to have some fun the way locals have fun. You can go to the greyhound races in Scotland. Uh, you can go to a hammam, a, a, a sauna, and a bath in uh, Turkey. Uh, you can go to a, a hurling match in Ireland. That's a thrill. You can go to a soccer game in Rome, and you are really connecting with people and, and having a much better experience, uh, much more vivid memories, and probably spending less money while you're at it. Yeah, it's a much more intimate experience. I mean, some people go and just head for this, you know, head for the gap if they're in London. I mean, which is really you, you can do mm, that yeah. if you're in New York. But uh, one of the things that you said, and I think that we try to do that all the time. I think it's great advice. We go to the bar. The first thing we do and sit at the bar at the hotel or wherever it is, and you're so right. You end up talking to people right from the beginning, right from the get-go. And yeah, it's just, yeah, start, and you're eating of, and you're drinking, and it's fun and it's intimate, and it's a really easy way to connect. Yeah, one of my favorite things these days um, is even to go beyond the bar. Uh, you know, the bar is uh, a nice start, but every city has trendy areas where young locals and anybody who likes to get out and about goes for their uh, aperitivo or their little, um, you know, uh, before-dinner drink and uh, a spritz or an uh, Aperol or a, uh, any sort of a uh, local drink is uh, comes with uh, some munchies and a very lively crowd and a lot of great people watching. So I've always um, thought, you know, the best $5 you can spend anywhere in the Mediterranean world especially is to sit on the greatest square, the Campo in Siena or, or the, you know, the, the main square in, in Salamanca in Spain or or um, you know the the main boulevard in in Barcelona, and uh, grab that drink, and you got all sorts of interesting locals around you, and just be part of that scene. Steve, what about this? I mean, I and for the seasoned traveler, and I would consider myself a seasoned traveler, and I want to go back to a lot of these cities, and I have. How do I make it different? I mean, you've kind of given hints to that, but because it is different for someone who's been traveling for the past 30 years to someone who's just going for the first time because they're going to see different kinds of things. So when you have, like, the seasons traveler, what would you say to them? What should they be doing differently? Well, bone up on, uh, on things before you get there. Find out what is happening today. If you've seen all the museums, there's going to be um, special exhibits. There's a huge... Uh, vibrant art exhibit and gallery scene that people who like art can get into. Um, if, you are, um, um, uh, if you have the money, hire a local guide and, and share with them your personal interests, and they will tailor a tour just to your, your needs. If you've been to Barcelona forever, you've probably been to the La Bocaria Market forever. All the tourists go there. It's, all the cruise ship groups go there. It's a lot of fun, but it's, it's pretty touristy. I was just there working on a new book a couple of months ago, and and I found another market which has no tourists and just as much as vibrant life, and that was the St. Catherine's Market uh, in, a, in a more traditional neighborhood. Um, I find that you know uh, a lot of us just scratch the surface, and if you go back on another trip, you can delve deeper into wherever you're going. I was just in Estonia, and I, I'd been going to Estonia for years, and I didn't realize the stirring story they had as they courageously broke away from the Soviet Union. 
and they say, we're a million people, we Estonians, uh, lodged between Germany and Russia. That's not a pretty picture, and we're hopelessly outgunned. Sometimes we just have to sing to let people know that we're here. And they literally won their independence from the Soviet Union by singing. And to learn about that, you can watch a movie, a documentary movie called The Singing Revolution, and suddenly your visit to Estonia, even if you've been there five times, becomes much more real. And uh, there's these kind of tricks that I, I try to talk about in my books that, uh, that help people. I've been going back to Paris and London and Rome almost every year for 30 years, and uh, I still approach each of them with a frisky, wide-eyed wonder of a first-timer because uh, I know that you could never exhaust those great cities of what they have to offer. But you do, the responsibility is up to you to, to find new angles on it and, and, you know, choose a hotel in a different neighborhood and have a, a, a little more wide-eyed um, um, appreciation of the culture. I was in Florence recently, and I've been going for years to see the frescoes on the ceilings of the churches. And then on my last trip, I decided I'm going to make a fresco. So I found an art uh, studio where I could actually have a, a teacher, and I made a fresco. That was really beautiful. I've been going to Lisbon all my life, and on this last trip, I, I took a local tour. It cost me $30, and we visited eight little eateries and, and learned about the food history, and we had a sort of an eight-course dinner with a local guide explaining things, and I learned a lot, and it was uh, no more expensive than just going to a restaurant and having a dinner, but it was a mobile feast and one of the highlights of my experience. So I love it. Uh, these... I mean, there's so much. I mean, you've just given me so many ideas, that not just... Not just I, but I'm sure all my listeners as well. But um, we have to say goodbye. I just want to mention the book again because it's a Rick Steves Europe throughout through the back door. This is the 2012 version, uh, the Travel Skills Handbook, and you can go to Rick's uh, website, RickSteves.com. Thanks so much for yeah. sharing well, all that thanks. information. There's a lot more, so um, listeners should really should go to your website and find out uh, what else is happening yeah. in Europe. Well, Thank you. Thanks, Catherine, and continued happy travels to you too. Great. Thank you. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox. It's been a great show today. I've enjoyed it. Lots of different kinds of information. Uh, you can uh, download uh, the show, as I said, this evening. Um, you've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Hope you uh, have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 